where, where's my, where, I can't, where are all those creasters? <laughs> where are they this morning? I, last Sunday, you couldn't walk down the street without stepping on one. Where, where are they this morning? Where are they? Don't get me wrong, I'll let you know what creasters are, aren't, don't you? People who come to church at Christmas and Easter, you know those, the creasers? I, I know I make fun of them, I pick on them, but I really love them. I love the presence of creasters. It thrills me that 2,000 years later, the person of Jesus Christ can still fill a house. Around the world, churches were packed out last Sunday. How do you explain creasters? How do you explain people who come to church on Christmas and Easter? What does their presence and then their absence indicate? Do they know the surpassing greatness? Do they want it? Do you know of the surpassing greatness? And do you want it? And what will you do to get it? That's what I want us to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 3, you don't have them open there, but if you'll take your Bible... If you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you. Turn in the New Testament. The letter written to the Ephesians, the third chapter, and when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand because we're going to hear read together the word of, of the living God. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, this is the word of the Lord. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again for time together in your word. And we pray now, O Spirit of God, that you would teach us that where we doubt this truth, that where we don't live out this truth, that you would reveal to us that there's one surpassing greatness in our lives, and that is in knowing you. And so we pray, Lord, that that would be the goal of our lives and the desire of our hearts. If it's not now, we pray that it, it would be as a result of being in your word together this morning. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And if you will look with me again in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes there, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. If I heard a new believer say that, I would be thrilled. I'd say, that, that's awesome. You've come to faith in Christ, and now you want to know him more and more. If I heard a creaster say those words, I would be thrilled. I'd say, oh, that's awesome. After coming to church twice a year, you finally get it. There's more to it. You, you, you want to know Christ. But it strikes me as odd that Paul would write this. I want to know Christ. 
As odd as it would strike me if, if Fred came to me and said, I want to know how to play the piano. It's strange. If I were sitting among the believers there at the church in Philippi, Lydia and her family, the Philippian jailer and his family, the slave girl, and all those who had come to faith in Christ there in Philippi. If we were sitting there during worship and this letter was read from Paul, and I heard Paul make this statement, I want to know Christ, I think it would unsettle me. I think it would knock me off balance a little bit and make me ask, wait, Paul, what do you mean you want to know Christ? Because, Paul, you do know Christ. The Spirit of Jesus gave you that vision. You saw a man calling to come to Macedonia, and and we were it. We were the first stop on that trip. You, You planted this church, Paul, our church. We know your story. You're traveling along the road to Damascus, on your way to hunt down Christians and find them and persecute them. And the Lord appeared to you in a flash of light, and you fell to the ground, and you were humbled. You put your faith in Christ. You began immediately to to preach the gospel and and people were astonished by your preaching and then you went away for years so you could study just to equip yourself for the ministry of the gospel. You're the greatest missionary the church has ever known. You're an apostle. More than half the New Testament comes from your pen. So what do you mean, Paul? You want to know Christ. And if Paul wants to know Christ, what does that mean for the rest of us? who so easily say, Christ, oh yes, I know him, I know Jesus. We've stuffed that word to know with so much fluff that we have become satisfied with so little. You know, in our our relationships, this, this word know has become so shallow that when we're not even ankle deep in a relationship, we've barely stuck our big toe in that relationship, and we say, oh yeah, I know that person. You friend one of your friend's friends on Facebook, and then you say, oh yeah, I know so-and-so, we are Facebook friends. Really? You know that person? Even the name Facebook says it all, right? We don't get beyond the face to the person beneath. Isn't that actually the purpose of Facebook? It's not to know. It's to picture the life that you want others to think you have and the life that you want them to wish they had for themselves because your life is so great. I think the difficult reality, truly, is that so many believers in Christ, and this might also explain the Christer phenomenon, they only have a Facebook friendship with Jesus. In an article for Prospect Magazine, which is called The Leading Magazine of Ideas. Author Edward Dox writes this about the the current cultural trends. He says, The immediate consequences of the Internet in the West seems to have been to breed a generation more interested in social networking than social revolution. But if we look behind that, we find a secondary reverse effect a universal yearning for some kind of offline authenticity. We desire to be redeemed from the grossness of our consumption, the sham of our attitudinizing, the teeming insecurities on which social networking sites were founded and now feed. We want to become reacquainted 
with the spellbinding narrative of expertise. Gradually, we hear more and more affirmation for those who can render expertly. The sculptor who can sculpt, the ceramist, the jeweler, even the novelist who can actually write. Now, if this analysis is accurate, really there are are exciting opportunities ahead for the church, for, for spiritual awakening. If it is true that people really do want to be redeemed from the grossness of consumption, if they want to be set free from the insecurities that are fed by social networking, if people really do want to become reacquainted with the spellbinding narrative, listen, we've got the best story ever told to tell them. If people really are looking for expertise, imagine the opportunities that await us as we become more and more experts on Christ. And they come to us and say, tell us more about this person. This is how Paul uses the word to know here in these verses. He means to become an expert on the person of Christ. And all the nuances of this word in the Greek, they all point to to an experience that comes from having a, a relationship or an association with a person. And maybe the difference between the way Paul uses the word to know and the way we use the word to know is this. Paul uses it in the way that here's an object that is handcrafted. By you. Every detail of it you know because you crafted it. As opposed to you who operated the machine or put the flip the start switch for the machine that mass produced that object. That's the difference. This intimate handcrafted knowledge as opposed to mass production. Here in verse 10, Paul means that his desire is to study Christ, who he is, and what he has done, and to become an expert on him. But even that doesn't describe the intimacy that Paul is talking about here because Jesus isn't a thing to be studied. He's a person to whom we relate. And so the same word that Paul uses here in Philippians 3.10 is also used to translate the Hebrew of Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. This knowing relates to more than just the physical union between the two. Again, that's how we have robbed the word of its meaning. Nowadays, people hook up at a bar. They go out on a first date, you know, and maybe they've had this physical, maybe they had this sexual encounter with somebody, but they don't know them, not intimately. And so whatever physical activity it is that people are engaged in, that you're engaged in, with people that you casually know, don't ever believe that you really know that person. It's not intimacy. It's only a a misuse and a tragic and harmful misunderstanding of the good gift that God has given to us. This knowing, true knowing, has a profound emotional and spiritual element to it. Paul says he wants to know Christ because he recognizes from the understanding that he already has from the experiences that he's already shared with the resurrected Savior, that there's so much more to know, so much more truth to experience. Now the good news for us this morning is that when we confess before Christ that our biggest problem in the world is our sin problem, 
It's destroying us. It's destroying our lives. And there's nothing we can do about it. Only Christ can do something about it. And we confess that. Jesus, you do something about my sin problem. Guess what? He'll do that. We turn to faith in him. He forgives us. And heaven is open to us. But listen, that's just our conversion experience. That's our introduction to Jesus. Just like Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus. But like Paul, you and I need to have this dissatisfaction with only having met the Lord. We've got to have this longing to know more and more about him. When commenting on this verse, every single commentary I read, without exception, was careful to draw this distinction between factual knowledge uh, an assent to this set uh, of facts and true experiential knowledge. They're different. Why is so much ink spilled to, to make this differentiation? What's the problem? What's the problem that exists? That commentators throughout the history of the church have felt that they need to warn against or to correct Soaring attendance in churches around the world last week. It should point out that there is some disconnect to what people think knowing Christ is. The knowledge of Christ that Paul refers to here demands so much more than that. A twice a year attendance at church. It's not a harsh, demanding taskmaster. Crack the whip. No more. No more. Study harder. Study harder. Not that kind of demanding. It's more like the demanding of an empty stomach. You know that your stomach is not going to give you peace until you fill it, is it? You know, you may try to distract yourself, you get nervous, you do this or that, to try to forget how hungry you are. But your hunger is not going to be satisfied until you feed it. And, and that's more what Paul is talking about here. There's this hunger that won't be satisfied in him until he knows more and more about Jesus because there's so much more of him to know. You know, it's true. Jesus is the only inexhaustible person. You can exhaust me. You can exhaust my patience. You can exhaust my grace. You can exhaust my love. You can get on my very last nerve. My children have never done that. You can, acknowledge, you can exhaust all there is to know about me and say, well, there's not much to him. I'm going to move on to somebody else. But listen, not with Jesus. There's always more, more, more. I think of the vastness of the American West back in the days of the explorers Lewis and Clark. And what an enormous amount of territory that they were tasked with exploring and charting and mapping out as they left from Camp Dubois on May 14th of 1804. Think of the things that they saw as they began their expedition and their exploration. Mountains, plains, rivers, streams, all the different kinds of plants and animals they saw. They crossed the Continental Divide, for goodness sake, and then all the way to the Pacific Ocean. On and on the list could go of what these men discovered that they had never seen before. But then think about this. Think about what they didn't see, what they didn't touch, what their eyes never saw, and the millions and millions and millions of acres through which they traveled. And it would be easy for these two comparatively, comparatively insignificant men and the team that was with them 
think of how easy it would have been with no GPS to get lost in the vastness of that territory. And so it is with Christ. He is vast. He is inexhaustible. And how small we should feel, those of us who say, oh, I know Christ, how small we should feel in his perfect humanity. How did he do that? And in his infinite divinity. And yet too many people are too often satisfied to, to just to stay at camp. They're not willing to wander off. They're not really to, ready to set off on this great adventure into the vastness of the person of Christ. Well, in the time we have left this morning, I want us to explore a little bit. Not only to see more about Jesus to know more about him, but just in a small way to see how vast he is, no matter how much we know, that there's so much more to know. So we start out on that. You ready? Let's go on this expedition. Okay, so, so, so we start out exploring the person of Christ, and we say, look, oh, look, over there, there is an advocate. That's what Scripture says that Jesus is, 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. So here's something for us to know about the person of Christ. He's our advocate. He will stand up for you. He will defend you. And how rare is that? Sometimes, sometimes people will stand up for us when we're right. They'll stand up for us when we are innocent. Sometimes, but who's going to defend us when we are wrong, when we are absolutely and disgustingly guilty? Christ will. He is our advocate. No matter what your sin is, no matter what my sin is, it doesn't matter. Jesus is never going to slam his briefcase shut and storm out of the courtroom in disgust, saying, I will never defend that person. No, he's our advocate. He's our defender. He speaks for you and he speaks for me. And the wounds on his hands and his side and on his feet, always before the Father, they are continual evidence that the price has been paid. The price of sin has been paid. We are forgiven. I want to know Christ, my advocate. And I would like to think about that more this morning, but there's no time. Because look, over there, over there is an all in all. Colossians 3, 11. But Christ is all and is in all. That's an extreme way to know Christ. An extreme statement. Christ is all. And so what that does for us is it precludes our segmenting off Christ to, to certain areas of our lives. You know, Christ is all. And in all, your finances, your relationships, your work, your school, your thoughts, your feelings, everything, all things, find their true fulfillment in Christ. Apart from Jesus being our all and being in all, there's no wholeness in our lives. In any area of our life, in any area of our life of which Jesus is not a part, there will never be wholeness. There will never be completeness because Christ is all. It also precludes our seeking for 
that kind of fulfillment in any other person or any other source. And I would like to talk about that more, really. What does it mean for Christ to be all and in all, except we can't because, look, there's something else. <gasps> what is it? It is an anchor. Hebrews 6.19. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. How easy it is for us to drift away. Our eyes see someone we like, our eyes see something we like, and our eyes follow that thing, our eyes follow that person, pretty soon our heart comes tagging along right behind. And left on our own, left on our own, we might follow those things further and further and further away from Christ, so we feel like, you know what, I can never get back. Not now. But we're not left on our own because we know Christ as our anchor. He will anchor us down. He'll hold us back. He'll keep us from drifting hopelessly away. What do you and I need to do? Anchor our lives in Him. And stop wondering. And stop drifting. The prodigal son had to to wander far, far from his home for an uncertain future, and it's there that he discovered that there is no place like home. So no matter how far you've wandered, If you're here this morning and you've wandered away, you're not hopeless, you're not helpless. Christ is an anchor. Bring you back, hold you in place so that you can find your true joy and peace and contentment. Not wandering here and there and there and following this person and that thing, but you find it in Christ. Now we could keep talking about that. Christ, our anchor. But you know what? We don't have time, do we? Because there's more to discover. What is it? Let's see. I see. What is that? Oh, I know what that is. That is the balm of Gilead. Right there it is. Jeremiah 8.22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Gilead, the, the town was famous for the oil from the balsam tree. It was famous for its healing power. Remember we talked about Zacchaeus a few weeks ago in Jericho? That's why little Zacchaeus made so much money because Jericho was a place that exported tons uh, of balm from Gilead. It was very expensive because every tree only yielded six to seven gallons a year and so it was very expensive because it was so hard to come by. But the belief was widespread that that oil was the balm of Gilead, and that it would make wounded, sick people well. But here's the thing. You could dump on uh, gallons of the the balm of Gilead, but it could never heal, it could never salve the pain caused by sin. It can't soothe it or make it well. Only Christ can, the true balm of Gilead. As you know already, he is the only remedy. He's the only antidote for sin. I hope you know that. And not just in a judicial way, not in just the way where the gavel falls and says, you are not guilty, though he does that. He's a bomb of Gilead. Soothes our souls. Heals the scars. Makes us feel better in spite of the pain. Washes over and heals our minds of all the trouble that's there. That's who Jesus is. Do you know him that way? This is one who can soothe and heal the balm 
of Gilead. We could talk more about that, but there's more to discover. We keep on our little adventure, and what do we, we discover? Well, now we see a bridegroom. John 3, 29, a bridegroom out in the middle of the forest. The, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. So Christ is our groom. This is where guys kind of zone out because this is just a little bit too weird for guys, come on, you know it's weird to think of yourself as a bride, you know, the white dress and the veil, because no matter how you picture that, it is an ugly thing to behold, isn't it? Really, a white veil over all this stubble. Anyway, we don't want to think about that. Ugly bride, an ugly bride. Men make ugly brides. You know what? I kind of love that. It makes this illustration, this, this picture of Jesus more uh, effective. Because sin is black and sin is ugly and sin leaves scars everywhere. Scarred up faces, scarred up bodies, ugly, ugly, ugly. Who would choose a bride as ugly as some of us would be? Who? No, you would be passed over. You you are too ugly for me. But not Jesus. He loves us enough to claim us as his bride, no matter how ugly we are, and to begin to go to work to change us, preparing for the wedding day by a spirit cleansing us and washing us from sin and unrighteousness so that we look better and better. And by the time our wedding day arrives, when we are joined together with Christ forever, we've had a complete makeover. And we're spotless, without stain or blemish. That's what Scripture promises us. That's how much Jesus loves us and wants to be with us. Now, we talk more about that, but you know what? There's more to discover. We keep exploring, we discover something else. Well, there is Jesus who is the same. Hebrews 1, 10. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same. Your years will never end. And I'm not going to bore you as the old guy. Well, now, when I was growing up, blah, 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 blah. who cares? <laughs> you know, what happened when I was growing up? We, we all get the point. The world is changing around us. And the world is changing so quickly. We wonder if anything will remain. I mean, you can't even click on the same sequence when you're online looking for something. <laughs> that path is lost forever. Nobody else can duplicate it. And so everything around us does seem uncertain and unsure. Things change so much, except Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the unchanging God. What a comfort it is to know. Is, you know, we stand here and just watch everything change around us, but not Jesus. He's always going to stay, always the same. That's a great thing to think about, too, but we can't because there's more to discover. And this time, you know what we see? We see a lion, the Lion of Judah. Revelation 5, 5. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. See, the lion was like the mascot for the tribe of Judah. Uh, It was uh, represented bravery and power and, and royalty. And so statues of lions flanked the steps that led up to the throne of the king uh, of Judah. 
Scripture tells us Christ is the Lion of Judah. Christ the Lion, Christ the Brave One, Christ the Powerful One, Christ the Conquering One, Christ the One who without fear faced death and defeated it, Christ the Royal King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ is just as mighty, He's just as powerful in your life and mine. Powerful to conquer and defeat sin, to trap it in his powerful jaws and to put it to death. Christ is your king. And like a good king, he cares about his subjects. And so he roars over you and he roars over me to protect us, and to show himself strong on our behalf. Yes, I want to know Christ, the line of Judah, and his power in my life, but I don't have time to think about him being a lion because look, we turn the other direction, what do we see? We see Christ as a lamb, the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. This table says all we need to know. Right here it is. Christ, the lion, became Christ the lamb. Silently, meekly, willingly, giving himself, giving his life to die on the cross for you and for me, our Passover lamb. Let me tell you, that's only eight. And I know that seemed like a lot. That's only eight out of 153 names used for Christ in Scripture. Those are just his names. We don't even have time to explore Christ, the friend of sinners, Christ, the ancient of days, the author and perfecter of our faith. There's so much exploring that you and I need to do when it comes to the person of Christ. But I pray that we've done enough this morning to help us understand why it is that the Apostle Paul, great man that he was, would make this statement, I want to know Christ. And I pray that we've seen enough this morning to know that we need to know Christ on a far greater level than just being Facebook friends with him. And to know that it's possible. And for you and I to make some decisions in our lives to to subordinate other goals or to replace them altogether, whatever they are, with this one great goal of knowing Christ. That you and I would make the sacrifices in our lives and the life choices that we need to make as very, very busy people. What are we going to do? What choices are we going to make so that we have time to know Christ? and experience more and more of Him. I'm going to leave you with just a couple of verses to meditate on about knowing Christ. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. Listen. But let him who boasts boasts about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. 1 John 5, 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And finally, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and the truth of it. Spirit of God, we thank you for your power to teach and to transform. Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning, not through my weak and inadequate words, but through the truth of your word. Lord, convince us, people who so readily and easily say, oh, I know Jesus, but who spend so little time with you, getting to know you, spend so little time bringing you along with us and including you in our lives and introducing you to our friends after hours or even in the workplace or in the classroom. For those of us who would so easily say, I know Jesus, convict our hearts that there's so much more to know. We thank you, Lord, that knowing you is simple. It's as simple as confessing our faith and confessing our sin and turning in faith to you. We know you in that moment, Lord, but remind us that this is just our introduction. There's so much more to know. And so pray, Lord, that you would give us a hunger. Every person here, Lord, may we be hungry to know you more and more. And I pray, Lord, for this dissatisfaction to come over all of our lives. Father, may we not be satisfied in anything, no matter what it is. We think that will bring us satisfaction. Don't let us. Don't let us satisfy us, Lord, if you are not at the very center of it, if you are not our all in all. Father, we know this is what you want us to be, and we will be blessed. We will be abundantly blessed by knowing you this way. It's a surpassing greatness, Lord, to know you. So I pray that we would all seek that surpassing greatness in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.